1966, the Vietnam War escalated, Star Trek debuted, and The Sound of Music won Best Picture. It was also the year that one of the most foundational tools in investigative reporting, the Freedom of Information Act, was signed into law. In short, the law requires the federal government to disclose information and documents if a member of the public asks for it. It's a bedrock for protecting the people's right to know. But it also has loopholes, both official and unofficial. For our last episode of the year, we'll review the State of the Freedom of Information Act at age 50. What has changed, and why is it still so difficult for journalists to get the information they're legally entitled to? IRE's Riley Began talks to three people who are intimately familiar with FOIA headaches. First, we'll hear from Jonathan Peters, a scholar in media law and the Columbia Journalism Review's press freedom correspondent. Then, Philip Isle, a freelance reporter who is almost five years into a battle for open records. And finally, Jason Leopold, an investigative reporter for Vice News whose dogged use of FOIA earned him the title FOIA terrorist from a government official. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. This year, Reporters Without Borders ranked the United States 41st out of more than 180 countries for freedom of the press. Our ranking is higher than many, in part because we're one of around 100 nations in the world that even has laws for ensuring government transparency. But the U.S.'s ranking is much lower than some, including countries like Namibia and Ghana. One of the reasons for that is that some of our press freedoms are not so thoroughly protected. This year's ranking described the government's war on whistleblowers and secrecy surrounding national security as major obstacles for media freedom. When it comes to FOIA, extra obstacles for requesters, long delays, and overclassification are just a few of the major roadblocks on our path to access. Jonathan Peters is a media law professor at the University of Kansas and the Columbia Journalism Review's press freedom correspondent. He's written extensively on legal issues related to the First Amendment, both in his academic work and for publications like Esquire, The Atlantic, Slate, PBS, and The Nation. How do you think that FOIA laws and access to information has changed um, over time? You know, it would obviously be too much for me to cover all of the ways that the FOIA has changed in the last you know, 15 to 20 years, but I'll hit a couple of key changes for you. And one is the birth of the Office of Government Information Services, which began operating in the National Archives and Records Administration in 2009, and it's supposed to improve processes and procedures in the FOIA context. So it Uh, reviews agency policies and FOIA compliance. It recommends policy changes to to Congress and to the president, and it offers free-of-charge mediation services to resolve disputes between FOIA requesters and federal agencies as an alternative to litigation, which can be pretty costly. Um, And then another major change, even more recent uh, than that, came in the summer, Uh, When the president signed into law the FOIA Improvement Act of 2016, and it changed some disclosability requirements and generally made it easier for the public to access records. So a few of the highlights of that Improvement Act, the, the law now requires all federal agencies to make disclosable um, records available to the public via in electronic format. Uh, another thing in the area of repeat requests. 
The law now requires agencies to make available for public viewing any disclosable document that is requested three or more times. And then the the last thing I mentioned to you is um, in the area of uh, openness presumptions, the law still contains exemptions. Uh, And the exemptions enable the government to refuse to release requests and information. But instead of records being withheld simply because they meet an exemption, agencies are now not allowed to deny requests unless they reasonably believe that disclosure will harm an interest protected by the exemption. Uh, So, you know, those revisions, I think, were necessary to modernize the FOIA and just to mitigate the potential for, um, you know, abusive exemptions. What factors make it difficult for journalists to get a hold of public records? So before we get to the reasons, um, I would first establish that the government does have long delays in responding to FOIA requests. You know, the FOIA generally requires agencies to uh, determine within 20 working days after receipt of a request whether it will satisfy the request and then notify the requester accordingly. But in practice, that 20-day deadline is often ignored, and many agencies have huge FOIA request backlogs. I would say that federally, the Department of State is the worst agency for FOIA compliance. Uh, It's got numerous requests open right now that are roughly a decade old. Um, Now, what are the reasons for the delays? Where do you begin? Um, One, I would say, is political involvement in the FOIA process. It's not uncommon for political officials to interfere with disclosure. Um, FOIA requests can get subjected to extra layers of review if they involve politically sensitive or embarrassing information. And essentially, records deemed problematic can get withheld under questionable exemption claims. Um, Another reason for delay would be uh, intra-agency consultation. It's common for agencies to consult with other agencies that have what the, the statute calls equities uh, in the requested record. And in way too many cases, agencies use the consultation process as an effective denial without actually making a decision, uh, delaying you long enough that you give up or you no longer have a need for the requested records. And then the the third and final reason uh, for delay that I'd share with you is the erection of barriers that requesters have to jump over to obtain records. One classic one would be the use of unreasonable standards for a reasonable description of a record. The background here is that the FOIA requires that um, requesters provide a reasonable description of a requested record. You know, some agencies have played games with that requirement, and you know, they basically pretend that they have no idea what records you actually want. And, I mean, where do you think that public sentiment lies on this issue? Does the public care about access to public records? Uh, the short answer is yes. People are still overwhelmingly supportive of the FOIA and of the general principle of government transparency, but they're conflicted about the national security threats we face. I think the, the, um, the polling data in that area uh, are fascinating. And for one, U.S. citizens have really mixed views of major parts of our emerging national security landscape. You know, they mostly oppose 
the government collecting bulk data on its citizens. And they mostly believe that there are not adequate limits on what types of data could be collected. Um, but they also you know, don't see a need to sacrifice civil liberties to be safe from terrorism. Um, and on the flip side of the coin, they say anti-terrorism policies have not gone far enough uh, to protect them and that they want to control their personal information, but few of them believe that they are actually able to do it. Uh, so you know, the, the public is really conflicted in this area. And um, what are your hopes for the future of the Freedom of Information Act? I mean, do, do things need to change? And if so, what what do we need to do to get there? So I am the Columbia Journalism Review's press freedom correspondent. And last, it would have been January, uh, I wrote a column about the biggest threat to U.S. press freedom in 2015. For me, the answer is pretty clear. My biggest concern in 2015, the thing that just took up most of my intellectual um, you know, headspace in media law, uh, was government attempts to shield information and events from public view. It is absolutely nothing new for government agencies and officials to try to minimize their exposure and public scrutiny. But I do think that secrecy is a serious threat to a free press, um, more specifically, I worry about the resources and creativity that the government expends to parry the press and public. Uh, I worry about the shrinking budgets of many newspapers, historically the most likely to litigate, to unseal court papers, open meetings, and so on. Um, I worry about secrecy's effects on government operations and the democratic accountability that our system is supposed to beacon. And I worry about that beacon, you know, the example that we're setting for countries that look to us to be good shepherds. We have to do better than that. Now, we'll delve into conversations with two reporters who have extensive experience with FOIA problems in their own work. First, Philip Isle. Isle is a freelance reporter based in Providence, Rhode Island. He's written for Vice News, The Atlantic, Salon, and a host of other outlets. But perhaps his most significant piece has yet to be published. It's a book he's been working on since 2009 about Paul Volkman, a physician who the Department of Justice once called the largest physician dispenser of oxycodone in the United States. Volkman was convicted of, among other charges, prescribing medications that caused the overdose deaths of four patients. In 2012, he was sentenced to four consecutive life terms in federal prison, one of the longest criminal sentences for a physician in U.S. history. At the time, Isle was a graduate student at Columbia University. That year, he submitted his first-ever FOIA request to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration for the evidence used in Volkman's trial. As you could probably guess from our episode so far, the DEA didn't just hand over the information with a smile on its face. It took years for the request to be fully processed. When he finally got a response, they withheld more than 80% of what he requested and redacted almost everything else. So about three years after I filed the request, I was more or less empty-handed. And at that point, I had made all kinds of complaints. I was starting to make a stink publicly. And I reached out to my local ACLU, the Rhode Island ACLU. They helped me file a FOIA lawsuit. And as of last month, we won. Congratulations on winning the case. Thank you. But with one caveat, um, here we're talking, it's early November. It's not yet 60 days after uh, that U.S. District Court ruling in my FOIA case came down. And we're waiting on kind of the moment of truth in a couple weeks when the DEA will either hand over the materials that I asked for, that they've been commanded to hand over, 
or whether they file notice of an appeal, which could prolong uh, this whole process by months, if not years. I always, in terms of context, tell people that the fight over the release of the FBI file of John Lennon, which went all the way up to the Supreme Court, lasted 14 years. So while we're four and a half years into this FOIA fight, if you compare it to other FOIA fights, we're just getting started. And what factors play into making this process so arduous? First, let's talk about some context. I filed this request during the Obama administration. And while I appreciate a lot of the things President Obama has done while he's been in office, I have been very critical publicly that the administration's lack of transparency. They're an administration that has said one thing, infamously that they're the most transparent administration in history, and they've done another. So I filed my FOIA request at a really bad time because I filed it during an administration that's demonstrably bad at fielding FOIA requests. So that's one point. Another point is I have firsthand proof at one point of how some of these delays happen. And I did that by filing a FOIA request about my FOIA request. And in my case, I did find some really interesting things. At some point in time, my FOIA request was forwarded to the wrong office where it was accidentally deleted. This is an example of the kind of bureaucratic, almost slapstick errors that perhaps certainly caused a delay in my case, and maybe uh, similar things are happening elsewhere. Other factors is I was asking for sensitive medical information, which had been shown in open court, despite the fact that President Obama preached a presumption of openness. At all stages in the process, I encountered a presumption um, and an instinct to withhold as opposed to disclose. That presumption of openness has now been codified into the law as part of the FOIA reform package that the president signed earlier this year. So you put all these factors together, the bureaucratic incompetence, the culture of withholding, the culture of non-transparency from the top down, and you end up with serious delays. What are the consequences of a culture of withholding and the lack of incentive to release documents? You know, in some senses, I think FOIA has a branding problem. It's, it could be called what people are doing in our name and with our money. And if these requests aren't being answered properly or aren't being answered promptly, you're left to wonder what's being done in your name and with your money. And my case is the perfect example of this. You know, this was a trial, the USA versus Paul Volkman, and I often said that anyone who's a U.S. citizen was a plaintiff in this case. We are part of that USA, and we should want to know who is being put in prison in our name and why they're being put there. I don't necessarily think Paul Volkman is innocent, but I do want to know that you know, one of the most important and powerful functions the government has of taking a person who's a free person and putting them in a prison cell for the rest of their lives is being done for good reason. Do you think the public cares about this as much as, as some journalists do? Or at all, I guess? Do they care about it? So here's what I say about FOIA. As passionate as I am about it, I'm also a realist. The general public is never going to care about FOIA as much as they care about abortion or gun rights or Obamacare or the First Amendment 
or these things that have real and tangible effects on their lives. That's just not going to happen, and we shouldn't expect it to happen. And we shouldn't even say that FOIA is as important as those things, because in a lot of, you know, a lot of obvious ways, it's not. Which isn't to say it's not important, because, I mean, here we are in an election year, and requesting information from your government, in addition to paying taxes and showing up to vote, is this really tangible and actually kind of rare way that you can participate in democracy. And it's a really special thing. I read in in some of the stuff that you wrote about this experience that you tried to kind of get this in papers to show the public what this situation is like. Um, yeah. And, the, and you face some resistance. Yeah. So I once described my FOIA experience as the single most disillusioning experience of my life. And I stand by that. But what was probably even more painful was when I was a few years in and uh, I was in the work process of suing the government over what I felt was a, not a trivial request at all, right? It was about a big prescription drug dealing trial that sent a guy to prison where a bunch of people died. I mean, this was mattered. And reporters just kept giving me reasons why they weren't going to write about it. You know, one said, I think FOIA stuff is a little inside media baseball for our site. Another said, it's an interesting case, but we don't cover FOIA litigation generally. And the most painful one was from a national columnist who wrote, we've all got FOIA horror stories to share. What's so special about yours? And to that last one, I would say, try to apply that to any other problem. If we were talking about lead poisoned water, would we say lead poisoning and water is such a big problem that, you know, what's so important about the story of lead poisoning in your town? Or mass shootings are such a big problem that what's so important about this mass shooting that happened in your town? I mean, the idea behind that was just so disturbing to me, and I felt like really disillusioned with my own profession. Um, and I'm, so that's one thing. At the same time, having been an editor, I get it. FOIA stonewalling stories don't offer a lot of the kind of obvious handholds or footholds for you to hang a story on. There are no documents there. It's a long-running story with no resolution. It's not sexy and interesting, but it's important nonetheless. What can individual journalists do to make this process better for everyone? Um, I think journalism in general is maybe perhaps going to drift toward a more document-based format for a few reasons. I think we are in this hyper-partisan moment in our culture and journalism is certainly implicated in that. And the wonderful thing about documents is that they are apartisan. They are non-political. They are just the raw information. And I think perhaps to stave off accusations of bias, which may be founded or not, news organizations um, can benefit from, again, trusting their audience and putting some of this raw information out there. And I would certainly say that to all of these reporters and editors who came up with various reasons why they shouldn't cover my FOIA case, I would just ask you if you're a reporter or editor who's telling someone why you're not going to report on their stonewalling case, what are you doing? This is the, this is the lifeblood of what we do. We hold government accountable. And if you don't care about this stuff or you don't have time to care about this stuff or you're coming up with reasons why your readers or viewers don't care about this stuff, I think it's time you look within for a minute and think about what you're really doing, what you're prioritizing ahead 
of the government stonewalling people. Since we spoke with Isle in November, the DEA has appealed the court's decision in his favor. So he still won't get his hands on the documents he needs until the appeal is settled, which could take months or even years. If you follow transparency issues, our final guest probably needs no introduction. Jason Leopold is an investigative reporter for Vice News, covering national security. And to say that he's an avid user of the Freedom of Information Act might be an understatement. He says he sends about 540 requests every year, and looks forward to that moment every day when he gets to crack open his mailbox to see what new government documents are waiting for him. But that steady stream of documents doesn't come easily. With thousands of successful requests under his belt, Leopold has also spent time in plenty of courtrooms in the pursuit of public records. What do you love about the Freedom of Information Act, and what do you hate about it? Well, what I love about it is the the chase, the chase in terms of trying to pry loose documents out of the government. Uh, the fact that I know that there are documents that exist about uh, a wide range of issues, uh, such as Guantanamo, the CIA's torture program, uh, inspector general reports that are t- sometimes secret, and so. Uh, I kind of enjoy the war, if you will, that I engage in with, uh, with government agencies and the fact that sometimes going after these documents uh, becomes a battle. And I like it. I enjoy that. I kind of get a, a little bit of a thrill off of it. What I hate about it is that there are no um, repercussions that come with the Freedom of Information Act in terms of uh, sometimes agencies just outright lie about the existence of records. Uh, sometimes government attorneys lie to judges in court about the reasons that certain documents must be kept secret. Uh, and when we later learn why they are kept secret and that they do not match what their claims are, uh, there's no accountability for that. What really, really angers me is the way in which agencies will thwart uh, FOIA requesters, will try to block the release of documents, the use of and abuse of FOIA exemptions to do so. And there's certainly no criminal penal- penalties um, that would uh, factor into uh, or, or, or rather, I should say, would, would, would be used against any you know, analyst or, or senior official for blocking the release of, of records. What factors come into play in making that so difficult? What's the incentive to, to hide stuff? You know, in my experience, really, it's been embarrassment. Uh, embarrassment about, you know, what the documents will reveal about what goes on behind the scenes. And just this sort of culture of secrecy, uh, sometimes the secrecy itself, it's, it's, sometimes things are just kept secret for secrecy's sake. It's sort of like uh, it, it baked into that culture that exists within government. I think that um, in many instances with agencies that, <clears throat> that I deal with, I cover national security. So when I'm dealing with uh, the CIA or the FBI or... Uh, the Department of Defense, they simply do not want to give up any of these documents because, you know, they claim that national security would be at risk. 
but really it's just it's it's to more or less conceal themselves from embarrassment and there is just in a a, a, a sort of culture there about, well, it's secret. It should remain secret. How dare you ask for it? Uh, the public has no right to this. So they don't seem to understand that these are our documents. These are the public. You know, these, these documents belong to the public. And uh, it, it just sort of seems to be inbred into that culture. Do you think that the public knows about that struggle? And do you think that they care about access to open records? I think the public very much cares about access to all the records uh, on the state and, uh, and the federal level. And I think that we've seen a massive increase in awareness and an understanding of the Freedom of Information Act uh, over, I would say, the past five years. Certainly the release of Hillary Clinton's emails, the release of which was the result of my Freedom of Information Act, that made FOIA a household word. And... The fact that we are also seeing, you know, this, this type of work online where primary source material um, is very important to the public, where perhaps you can trace it back to, say, WikiLeaks or even the, you know, the leaks from Edward Snowden, where it's not just anonymous, uh, anonymous officials that are saying things about a program or about, say, the treatment of prisoners or... Uh, uh, FBI surveillance of protesters, but you actually can you can embed documents to back up these types of stories, and and largely it goes into you know the reasons that I use the Freedom of Information Act. You know I decided to to use the Freedom of Information Act because I did not want to rely on anonymous sources. Many times, certainly in the past, when I've relied on anonymous officials to talk about a covert program or the or again I'm going to mention Guantanamo or the treatment of prisoners in the uh, by the CIA it's very hard you know the public has a hard time knowing whether or not they can they can trust that that's accurate but when I'm able to provide them with this primary source material it certainly helps build my credibility as a journalist and then as a national security reporter everything for the most part is classified or is secret. And so it becomes very, very difficult to obtain information uh, from agencies or sources who, who would decide to go on the record. And the fact that this administration has been so aggressive in its pursuit of leakers and media leaks in general, sources really don't have an incentive to speak, fearing that you know, they would be investigated. So I look at the Freedom of Information Act as a way to try and get that information out there. And what often happens is once I get certain documents declassified, it then makes sources feel far more comfortable to, to discuss those issues that they were previously were worried about. So it, in a sense, that's why I started using it so aggressively. As a national security reporter, I, I feel that it's just a very, very uh, incredible tool. And hopefully now with the changes to the law, it will become much stronger. Has the experience of fighting for records changed over time? I would say it's actually become a bit harder. It's, it's never been, in a sense, easy where, hey, we just get these documents. There are times when you do have to go to battle 
with the government. And certainly that would hold true for agencies like the CIA or the FBI. Uh, the FBI happens to be the worst agency when it comes to the Freedom of Information Act. They feel that they should be exempt from it, more or less. You know, one thing to note is that the NSA and the CIA are virtually exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. There is a uh, the NSA Act and the CIA Act, which essentially, you know, says that they don't have to release anything, largely, you know, for because everything that they do is classified and is in the interest of national security. And the, and the FBI feels that they should be entitled to that as well. And it's it's one of the reasons why, in terms of litigation, and I should make that clear, I don't get these records on um, on the administrative level meaning I don't just file a request and get these documents. I actually have to sue in, in many instances, you know, to, to gain access to these types of records. I have been lucky, and, you know, some, some uh, agencies will disclose records in a, uh, in a timely manner. But that is one of the issues, ongoing issues with FOIA, is that there's such a backlog you know, we've we've been hearing a lot of talk about fear of terrorism in the last you know few years, especially since 9/11. Do you think that fear about national security has created an overclassification problem for documents? Oh, absolutely. But I don't think it has to do with 9/11. I think it has to do certainly. You know, one you could look at 9/11, where hey, we're going to start engaging and, and and getting involved in covert programs, and we don't want don't want the public to know about that, right? So the, the after 9/11. You know, the NSA's vast surveillance programs, the uh, CIA's detention and interrogation program, otherwise known as its torture program, the Obama administration's uh, covert, you know, drone program. Certainly these, you know, these agencies in this administration and the last administration simply just don't want the public to know about this for no other reason than it's secret. I don't believe that, you know, national security would be at great risk if, if the details of it came out. And in fact, uh, you know, there, there were claims that, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, photographs revealing the way in which the U.S. treated prisoners in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan and even at Guantanamo uh, were released, that it would lead to, you know, an uprising in the Middle East. Uh, if the torture report that the, Senate, uh, that the Senate completed back in 2014 were released, it would... Uh, uh, it, it would wreak havoc across, you know, across the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, the same holds true for when the torture memos, these infamous memos written by John Yu, the former uh, Office of Legal Counsel attorney, that justified and gave the CIA the legal authority to torture prisoners. Uh, when the ACLU won, the, won a court case and, and got the administration to release those memos before it was released, there were claims by various government officials that uh, it would be detrimental for U.S. national security. Uh, and we've never seen any of that hold up or come true. You've been called pretty frequently a FOIA terrorist. Um, how do you feel about that term? You know, it's, it's funny. At first, when it was, when I heard about it by a government agency, it was basically, you know, I'm terrorizing them by filing all these FOIA requests. I was simply just doing my job. And it really made me angry. Uh, at this point, I kind of, uh, you know, took ownership of that uh, characterization, and I think it, you know, hopefully defines the type of work that I do, that I'm just incredibly aggressive, uh, I'm pretty competitive, 
Uh, I fiercely believe in, you know, in transparency and open open government, and I think it's a crucial part of investigative reporting. Uh, And I I think that that's how I define that. You know, it's funny, the Justice Department also said that I was a member of a FOIA posse and that I should use that as the name of my band. Um, I don't have a band, but I suppose that would be a pretty good band name. What was funny about that is I found out that they kind of referred to me that way by filing a FOIA request. It was through the, the release of documents where I see that they were talking about me that I, I discovered that. If you want to learn more about crafting the perfect FOIA request, listen to our bonus episode from earlier this year called Tips from a FOIA Terrorist. In it, Jason shares tips and techniques for making your requests as effective as possible. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for more FOIA resources and links to stories by our guests. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head on over to ire.org podcast to browse our archives. We'll be back in January with a new episode that looks at America's growing opioid crisis. Kara Tabor talked with journalists at New Jersey Advanced Media and the Palm Beach Post about how they found new ways to humanize the heroin epidemic. We know the horror of this year and the horror of what's probably coming next year are worse than what we dealt with for our 2015 reporting. And so that also obviously gave us a lot of motivation to try to get this right, to try to do the best we can to tell these stories, generate empathy, uh, hold policymakers and lawmakers accountable, and try to get some things done. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Riley Began reported this story, Blake Nelson drew our episode art, and Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's all for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal. Radio. Podcast. Podcast.